Welcome to episode 30 of the LPP podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, a website that gives practical non-12 step advice and personalized help for people with addiction or addiction-related problems in their lives. Not only drug addiction, but addictions of all kinds. Find out more. Visit lifeprocessprogram.com. Visiting lifeprocessprogram.com, you can sign up for the Life Process Program or browse addiction help resources like blogs, videos, and podcasts like this one. Again, that's lifeprocessprogram.com. Or follow us on social media. You'll find the links in the show notes. My guest today is Toby Sola. Toby is the CEO of a meditation app called Bright Mind, an app that's helpful for people at any level of practice to live more mindfully. And before I tell you more about the episode, I'll tell you that Toby has offered a promo code for the Bright Mind app. If you go to brightmind.com slash LPP, you'll get 50% off the price of the app, which comes to about $47 for one full year. And I'll share that link in the show notes as well. But it's brightmind.com slash LPP. There are a few reasons why I wanted to introduce you to Bright Mind. First, we get a lot of inquiries about meditation and mindfulness, which is a big part of the Life Process Program. Still, we want to expand your option of mindfulness resources, and you'll see that today's interview does just that. My guest, Toby Sola, is the CEO of the company. He is also on a lifelong mindfulness journey, both practicing and teaching. Actually, when I spoke with him, he was just coming off of a 10-day meditation retreat. Another reason that I chose to reach out to the folks from Bright Mind rather than another meditation app is that my friend Christian owns the program. I've always been amazed at Christian's personal growth since becoming involved in meditation, and ever since I've known him, he's always just wanted to give value to everybody around him. Most importantly, I'm being boosterous about Bright Mind because their content is excellent and being updated frequently. Today, Toby explains how the app can be valuable for people of all different personality types, different persuasions, people with all different goals or comfort levels. And we get into a very interesting conversation about addiction, which of course is salient, and what it means to be addicted and how mindfulness can help. I'll let you hear about it for yourself in the interview, and I have no doubt that this one will be very valuable to you. Remember, for 50% off a Bright Mind subscription, go to the link brightmind.com slash LPP. Enjoy episode number 30 with Toby Sola of Bright Mind. Remind me, your last name is pronounced Solas? No, Sola. Sola. Oh, I'm, so- yeah, I'm Sola. sorry. It's okay. Definitely will cut that out. I'll make it seem like I made a smooth <laughs> transition. Well, I'm here with Toby Sola. Toby's the CEO of Bright Mind, which is a meditation app, which you'll all hopefully experience uh, by the end of this or, or sometime in the near future after you're finished listening to this podcast. And Toby, you were just saying to me that you were bit really busy lately working on the app. And so it was a different vibe for you to be at a retreat. And I'm curious to hear from somebody who was sort of constantly practicing or thinking about mindfulness. What does that look like for you when you're working? I mean, how do you practice mindfulness when you're also working very hard on something? That will probably get us into some like broader conversation eventually about what Mm -hmm. mindfulness really is. But that's Mm -hmm. always, that could seem paradoxical if you don't get into enough depth about what mindfulness really means that, you know, this dichotomy that you're either working very hard or you're practicing mindfulness, but I would imagine that you have some way of uniting those two things. Yeah, it's a great question. A a few things come to mind. 
One is uh, in, in BrightMind, we introduce users to two basic strategies for uh, what we call life practice. So life practice are, is, is how, how, how do you bring meditation into your life? And so there are two basic strategies. One is micro hits and the other is background practice. So micro hits are uh, formal meditation sessions where you're not focused on work at all. You're solely focused on a meditation technique. However, they're short. So any session less than 10 minutes is technically a micro hit. And so if you sprinkle your day, your work day with micro hits, do one, you know, right when you get to work, do one before lunch, do another after lunch, do one in the mid afternoon. Even if you just do that without any other intention, you'll just notice that you're more mindful during your whole day. It just naturally mm -hmm. bleeds in and just the intention of periodically uh, getting a micro hit of a meditation technique, it ends up bleeding into the rest of your day without even trying. The second strategy background practice is when you do bring some intentionality into the practice and your current work on a kind of moment by moment basis. So when you sit into a formal meditation session, 100% of your attention is on doing the meditation technique. Um, during background practice, most of your attention can be on the, a task at hand, like writing an email, but you allocate a percentage, perhaps a small percentage of your attention to doing a meditation technique. So like um, 10 or 20% of your attention is on doing a meditation technique, whereas most of your attention is on doing the task. And so uh, you can still definitely engage with the task and move things forward and think critically. Um, but at the same time, you're maintaining at least some contact with a meditation technique. Now, mm -hmm. that might sound kind of esoteric and hard, and it definitely gets some getting used to. But um, with practice, you absolutely can uh, get a sense of how to focus on a task at hand, but also just kind of in the background, it may go in and out, uh, be maintaining a meditation technique. And practically speaking, what I do is I maintain a focus on body sensation and I like relax my body. And so you could imagine, uh, you know, it's a pretty simple way of, of meditating. So you could imagine um, as I'm writing an email, I'm like, kind of periodically just in the background focusing on my body and maybe relaxing a little bit and so that's background practice and especially the combination of micro hits and background practice can really bring on a pretty amazing new experience of doing tasks at while at work i would imagine that somebody who's um used to doing it you could get to a point that you're super self-reflexively aware, maybe so much so that you, you can use both of those techniques without even thinking about the fact that you're doing them. Yeah. And that actually brings up another point, which I was thinking of bringing up, which is getting the meditation technique to be automatic. Another way of answering your question is it's pretty hopeless to try to integrate meditation into your life unless it's automatic. And so this is just to be clear, this is a totally opposite perspective of what I was just saying. And, but I think it's an important one. And 
Um, they're both kind of true. It's paradoxical. There's a lot of paradoxical stuff in um, meditation. So anyways, wh where I was going with that is, yes, you meditate. Yes, you try to bring some of that stuff into your life. But also the stuff that really carries over and the stuff that that matters has to be automatic and, mm. and not just comes with practice. And so you just do a meditation technique over and over and over and over again. And what starts to happen with a lot of practice is some of that opening up, some of that focus, some of that clarification actually starts to just happen automatically. And that's really exciting when that starts happening for a student. And that's the stuff, one perspective from like leaving a meditation retreat is just forget about the technique. Anything that isn't automatic is, is useless. And so there's a real focus on getting the, getting the core ways in which you're shifting your attention to be completely automatic. And therefore they carry into your life really easily. I mean, you say that it's opposite and I guess in some ways they, those have to kind of essentially both be true. So maybe it's a broader perspective as well as a, an opposite perspective, depending on your heuristic. I don't want to get us too far into the weeds here because I, yeah. I'm, I feel like I could easily pile more questions on, but I should back up because I just sort of glossed over one very salient aspect of this entire conversation, the framing. Um, yeah. You work at Bright Minds and probably a, a lot of other things. I'd like, to, I'd like for people to hear, of course, I'll record an intro that they'll hear before this. So hopefully that'll mm -hmm. frame things okay. But uh, t tell me a little bit about you, how you got to work in meditation in general, how you became interested in it and so immersed in it. And please tell people a little bit about what Bright Minds is, because um, if everything goes right, I would really like for participants of our program to, when they ask us questions about meditation, to one, be able to hear clips of this podcast and maybe other resources, but also I'd like to send them your way. So uh, anything you want to say about it, don't think about it as a shameless plug, but uh, very valuable information probably. Yeah, thanks. Um, first of all, it's bright mind, no S. Um, yeah. <laughs> at least I'm consistent. <laughs> it's okay. People <laughs> get confused about the name all the time. Also, if you ever write it, yeah. the M isn't capitalized. It's one word and the mm -hmm. M isn't capitalized. Some people get confused about that. I probably, I've probably <laughs> written, I, I, yeah, I probably wrote it down a couple times in public now and I probably <laughs> ruined both of those things. So at least now okay. I can, I can amend it. So thank you for the clarification. You're welcome. Yeah, gosh. So my story starts in my childhood. I was naturally interested in spirituality. Um, I grew up rurally, which I think has a lot to do with it in rural Vermont, which we both share. You, you also grew up in Vermont, right? Yeah. So I grew up yeah. in Williston. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I was a little south of there, but I think as a lot of people who grew up rurally can attest, you know, nature is naturally inducive, induces awe. And um, I, I would say these days that just spending time in nature kind of naturally makes you more mindful. You don't even really yeah. have to bring too much intention to it. So you know, I grew up in the woods and I was just naturally interested in spirituality. I'm not really sure why, actually. Um, but my neighbor was very interested in spirituality, more in uh, Native American, Apache, more shamanic practices. Um, and so I worked with her and I would go over to her house on weekends. <clears throat> she would teach me stuff and I would like do chores for her kind of in uh payment or stacker wood or whatever. Mm. Um, and 
that was really impactful. I had some very significant experiences. She taught me some basic meditation techniques, but also it revolved a lot of or around uh, survival skills. So a bit more practical, like how to make fire, how to make shelter, foraging food, tracking, um, awareness exercises. It was really interesting. I was just totally enamored by the whole process. And then fast forward in my early 20s, my health really fell apart. Uh, I have I had and still have Lyme disease. Mm. And for me, that means a lot of musculoskeletal pain. So as a young, very active athlete and musician who was very passionate about using their body, it was really hard for me to all of a sudden be limited in my ability. So I really, it pushed me to the edge and I ended up having to take time off of school and just take some time to just see doctors and like try to get my health in line. And during that year, I started meditating a lot. I met specifically this teacher named Shinzen Young and he was really inspiring. Everything that I had done before with um, the more Native American focused stuff kind of fit right into a broader conceptual framework of like what spirituality is about and the different ways of practicing and why you might do this type of thing. And I really threw myself in during that year, practiced a lot, started even teaching. Um, at that time, Shinzen, the teacher that I had been inspired by, was encouraging his students to start teaching. And so I started teaching. I got really good feedback. Everyone was like, Toby, this, this really comes naturally to you. You should continue doing this. So I did. And I ended up helping start a residential training program, a kind of monastery, actually, after I graduated college. And that place is called the Monastic Academy. It's actually where I am right now. I'm uh, living here for at least a few months right now. But I, I spent like a solid year and a half after college training here. And it was very intensive training, uh, at least five hours of meditation a day, if not like 12, if you're doing an intensive retreat, uh, wake up at 4am chanting the whole nine yards. But after I had been there for about a year and a half, I was thinking of leaving and I got a call from Christian, who is, I think, our mutual friend. And he said, hey, I've heard about you. I need help. I, I want to make a meditation app based off of Shinzen's approach, which is the teacher that I was originally inspired by. Can you help with uh, the content side of things, the guided meditations? And I said, that sounds amazing. Dream job. Uh, totally. Let's do this. And so um, I started working with Christian, and that was about four years ago. And Christian and I have been working together ever since, and it's been a really amazing experience. And so we, we created Bright Mind together along with, we've had help from a number of different people and over the years. And basically what sets Bright Mind apart is where it's a approach to meditation that's comprehensive, precise, and practical. I could talk about a lot of things, but just to give one example, uh, meditation, the word meditation is like the word sport. So just like sports, they all, you know, in general, develop strength and flexibility. They all kind of have that in common. The rules of one sport compared to another are actually sometimes very different. So like NASCAR is nothing like soccer, which is nothing like football, which is nothing like basketball. There's a wide variety of rules of how to play different sports, but they do kind of all, all have that common thread of strength and flexibility. The word meditation is kind of like that. Um, there is a common thread of 
what I would call concentration, clarity, and equanimity, which we could get into if you want. But there is a wide variety of meditation techniques. And most meditation apps really only emphasize two, maybe three meditation techniques. Whereas BrightMind, we introduce you to a wide variety. And so in that way, it's comprehensive. You really get an understanding of the different ways to practice. And importantly, you appreciate the different ways to practice. Um, a lot of meditators are kind of rigid in their thinking, like this is the right way to practice and that's not good meditation. And so one of the things that, that we've tried to emphasize with Bright Mind is a real appreciation of the different um, approaches and to kind of bring in the practical piece, introducing users to a variety of techniques is, it really is practical because what works for me may not work for you and what works for me one day may not work for me the next. And so practically speaking, um, if you talk to any veteran meditator, they often have a variety of techniques and, they, and they've developed a kind of meta skill about when to practice which techniques at which time. And so again, if the goal is to develop a real um, legitimate mature practice, practically speaking, you're just gonna need a wider variety of techniques. That's one example of how we're comprehensive, precise, and practical. There, there are a bunch of other things that I could talk about, but I'll, I'll just kind of stop there. Um, but that's kind of what makes Bright Mind unique is we, we have a very systematic approach. That's perfect. That's a good segue. I would assume that there are plenty of people who can put themselves in your shoes as being sort of an existential thinker, if I can say that, or, mm-hmm. or spiritual, spiritually oriented kind of a person, someone whose interests fall in line with that. And maybe that's partly temperamental, or maybe that's partly where you grew up. And then again, probably a majority of people who don't quite resonate with that orientation of the world. So that's, I think that's actually, interestingly enough, how I got into meditation is that um, I never understood it to, you know, what people were saying about meditation as really applying to me. Although I knew that enough people were talking about mindfulness in general, that there was something interesting about mindfulness that I should be figuring out for myself. I'm actually going to stop that uh, thought there and come back to it. Um, I think that mm-hmm. what you've said is that you've now, you have that understanding and you've incorporated all different strategies for people who want to go about learning mindfulness and who might benefit from learning mindfulness in all different ways. And I would like to start with your, I mean, there are three pillars that you mentioned, and I think you said it's concentration, clarity, and equanimity. Yeah. I'd, I'd love for you to expand on some of those, or all of those. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Before doing that, I just want to touch on the first point you made in terms of meditation. Uh, there, there is a lot of confusion about, is meditation spiritual? Um, and for me, from the beginning, it, it definitely was. But it also, you know, in kind of the second chapter of my life, it was mostly a way to deal with intense, overwhelming suffering in my body. And it, that wasn't very spiritual, necessarily, it was a bit more practical. Mm. And so I just want to, and we can maybe come back to this, but I just want to say that there are a wide variety of reasons to practice and a yeah. wide variety of um, fruits of the practice. And spiritual insight, and purification is really only one thread. And there are other threads such as just being able to communicate better or Mm. um, stress not bothering you as much, just being more fulfilled when you do experience pleasure in your life. Also being more open and inspired to, you know, make the world a better place. So there's a wide variety of stuff. And 
most people can find things that are really interesting for them, even if it's not spirituality, at least up front. So then I guess to get to your second point. It's actually, um, as you were speaking, I, I noticed something that I just did, which I don't, it didn't actually sit quite right with myself. I used the term meditation and mindfulness interchangeably. And I don't actually think of them as necessarily interchangeable, even though that they're linked. What would, would you parse that difference at all? Is, there, is meditation mindfulness? Is mindfulness meditation? Great question. I would not, but this is really just simply an example of people use words in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it's very important if, um, to just ask people how they're using different terms. So yeah, people use the word meditation to mean all sorts of stuff. People use the word mindfulness to mean all sorts of stuff. In general, I guess mindfulness has a little more secular of a connotation, a little less spiritual, a little more stress relieving connotation, but it's not like these terms are being used the same by everyone. It's very, very wishy-washy. The only thing that I might say is meditation or to meditate is more of a verb. So meditation is the thing that you do. It's the practice. Mm. Um, In general, I use the word meditate as a verb and then mindfulness the way that i use the word is more what are what's the skill set that you're developing um Mm. and uh so you can and that's actually exactly what you then asked which is the skill set that you're developing is concentration clarity and equanimity perfect Um, so maybe we can go there now (laughs) please please do yeah thanks great cool so um the way in which Bright Mind defines mindfulness, the skill that meditation develops, is a set of three core attention skills, concentration, clarity, and equanimity. And I'll remind you of kind of the three things that, or the, the, the things that make Bright Mind's approach unique is comprehensive, precise, and practical. So I'll kind of be playing with those themes, I guess, as we go into this. To start, in terms of defining it this way is comprehensive. One can say that all meditation techniques, even with all their different rules, develop these same three core skills. And so that's helpful. It can kind of simplify things where no matter what meditation technique you're doing in Bright Mind, you know that you're developing these three core skills. And so in that way, it's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive kind of framework in order to understand what meditation does to the mind. I'll just take them one by one. Concentration is your ability to focus on what you choose. We definitely all experience variation in our ability to concentrate. Sometimes it's easy for us to concentrate. Sometimes it's hard for us to concentrate. And what we may not know is that you can systematically develop your ability to concentrate through a meditation practice. And the meditation, the different meditation practices do this in a wide variety of ways. I mean, this is an oversimplification, but I'll just use it. For example, if you're focusing on your breath, your mind wanders to a thought. When you notice that and then bring your attention back to your breath, that's like doing a rep with your concentration muscle. And over time, that muscle gets stronger and you can just more quickly come back to the breath or never leave the breath in the first place. That happens, you know, in the context of this meditation technique, that's kind of how it's working on the concentration. Again, there are other ways, but um, that can then transfer to being able to focus on anything. It's a fundamental core attention skill. 
So if you need to write an email, you can bring your attention to writing the email and you can stay there. So that's concentration, the ability to focus on what you choose. Now, equanimity is pretty misunderstood. It's the kind of, it's the hardest to explain. I'll do my best, but equanimity is the ability to allow sense experience to come and go without push or pull. And so I guess to take the same breath meditation example, you're focusing on your breath, your attention gets pulled to a thought. In that moment, you can do two things. You can either intentionally halt the thought, stop the thought, or you can allow the thought to continue as it wishes. But just in the background and you bring your, your attention back to your breath. And the second thing is, is more of what equanimity is about. So you're, it's the ability to allow stuff to come and go without pulling it towards you, making it happen, or pushing it away from you, stopping it happen. So in the breath meditation, it's the ability to allow thoughts to come and go in the background. You may think that if you're having thoughts during a breath-focused meditation, you're doing it wrong. But that's simply not true. It's a very common misunderstanding. It's an opportunity to develop the attention skill equanimity, which is the ability to allow the thoughts to come and go in the background. And that's a skill and it's really important. And lastly, clarity is the ability to track and explore your sense experience in real time. To stay with the breath example, you're feeling your breath, right? And every time you notice a detail that you didn't notice before, you're strengthening your clarity. So you notice like, oh, I actually feel my breath in that part of my chest. And I feel the breath isn't just some kind of solid thing. I actually am sensing a subtle vibration or flowing that's happening that I didn't really notice before. So it's one way to think about clarity is you're turning up the resolution in your sense experience and you're increasing the number of pixels you can detect in your sense experience. Just like concentration, we all experience equanimity and clarity during our life. And it's somewhat random when we're equanimous and when we're clear. But meditation is a systematic way to intentionally develop those. And then you can then translate them into your life. And so if you need to, um, and it relates to, well, I'll, I think I'll just stop there and say, that's concentration, clarity, and equanimity. Those are the three core attention skills. All meditation techniques develop them. Yeah, I'll leave it there. That's, that's kind of a, a nice overview. Are you familiar with the work of Ellen Langer? No. She's from Harvard who talked about mindfulness in a total like cognitive behavioral kind of a way. And some of the things mm -hmm. that she said really resonate with me. And I don't think I would have been as interested in all the things that you're kind of explaining right now, which makes so much sense. I mean, and I'm actually, I was sort of waiting with bated breath on each next thing you were going to say, because I love when I hear people take a concept that seems so simple and sort of expand in also simple terms, the way I'm thinking about it. And I guess that's in mindfulness in and of itself. But one of the things this woman, uh, Ellen Langer said was you know, she made a distinction between being mindful or being mindless. And, you know, we're always either mindful or mindless to some degree. And the problem with being mindless is that you'd like to think you could just say, well, bring yourself to the present 
but that can be an empty direction because if you're not there, you're not there to know that you're not there. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, that encapsulates a lot of what you were just talking about. Sort of, there are moments of equanimity that happen. This sort of, in a way, is sort of a a very natural state. Everything else is sort of a a perception and something that we build on that perception. It made me real. It made me think about, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was a kid, and who the hell really knows what that means? I'm not so much for, you know, I work Mm -hmm. with kids now, and I. I'm not interested very much in labels. I don't think that they have no utility at all, but I think that I don't, I've never had to apply a label to a person when I work with them. Anyway, I was trying to figure out what it meant to pay attention. And I had this idea that paying attention meant something like you have to be very, very focused on one thing. And if you lose Mm -hmm. focus and there's something in your periphery, then you're doing it wrong. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. And I use this story sometimes when I'm talking to, especially my, my younger students, is I was trying to practice this idea of mindfulness, which I thought meant paying you know, very sharp, focused attention on one thing or another. And I was trying to drown out my periphery. And I was going for a run. And I remember the last time I had run in this trail that I tripped over a route so I thought, okay, I'm going to just focus on the ground and not tripping over a root, simple enough. And it was just too perfect that I, I ran my head into a branch when I was running. And I, this was just this perfect, perfect an- anecdote for my life about what paying attention means. There's, just, there's something about attention as it applies to mindfulness that's like a soft attention. It doesn't mean hyper-focusing on one thing and leaving everything else behind. And I would, you were sort of talking about that and I would love it if you could s- kind of say what I'm saying. Cause I bet you know what I mean, yeah. but in, in better yeah, yeah, terms. Yeah. A, a bunch of things come to mind. One is actually going back to how there are a bunch of different types of meditation techniques and they're all pretty different. There are some meditation techniques where Either you're focusing on a lot of stuff kind of all at once. So for example, you focus on the ground in front of you to make sure you don't run into any roots, but you're also looking up in order to watch branches. And you hold both of those experiences in your awareness. And so rather than focusing on something small, you actually widen and focus on a lot of things all at once. And another kind of whole family of meditation techniques is you still focus on something small, but you let your attention go between a bunch of different stuff. So for three seconds, you focus on the ground and then your attention is pulled towards a branch. And so you focus for three seconds on the branch kind of in the more higher part of your visual field. And then you focus somewhere else for three seconds. Then you focus somewhere else for three seconds. So you're still focusing on small things, but your attention is going all over, maybe even between visual experience and like sounds or body sensation or thoughts. Um, There's all different configurations that you can do. I guess the key point that I want to make here, and another, another reason why we teach a variety of practices is that some of them are way more practical in daily life. And so, for example, if you are going to try to meditate during daily life, I completely do not recommend focusing on the breath if you're driving. That would be ridiculous. That's a really bad idea. If you try to focus on your breath while you're driving, 
you may get in an accident because you're intentionally directing your attention away from the sights around you. If you're driving, you pretty much have to have visual experience has to be within your, what I would call a focus range, the, the types of experiences that you're focusing on. Whether you're, you're holding all of visual space at once or you're focusing on a car and then a tree and then another car and then the side of the road, kind of momentarily, like I was saying, doesn't really matter, but you gotta be focusing on visual experience if you're driving. So yeah, there's, there's one dimension to this conversation, which is what meditation technique are you practicing when you're sitting down in a silent room doing formal practice? Right. And then there's another question, which is what meditation technique are you gonna do during your daily life? And it's very important to be practical when you make that second decision. Um, what types of things do you have to pay attention to? Okay, that kind of dictates the meditation technique that you're probably going to try during that time. Um, There's a bright mind with no S, it's singular. Um, does that, does that help people with that blueprint and kind of help talk people through which is which? Yeah. Every time you learn a technique, we're often mentioning how you might implement this during your daily life. So for example, if you're learning a focus on sound, we might say, try using this the next time you're having a conversation. So, and we, you know, we could do, that would be really, that's actually kind of pretty interesting. Um, I'm actually, so I'm reworking some of our core content right now. And so I'm having the opportunity to innovate and improve some of it. So I, I probably will be able to make that a bit more explicit in kind of the next iteration of content. That's a really good question. But it is, it's there. It's just not super. I could make it even more explicit and helpful, I think. We're going to talk about addiction in just a minute. And right. I'll, prob I'll probably that. segment that out so that people have the option of listening to the full interview or just listening to the piece that applies to addiction. But as I'm scanning some of some meditation apps, like um, like I've used Sam Harris's Waking Up app, and that's a really solid app. I'm sure you've heard of it or used it or at least aware of him, of Sam. And I've used it, and that's a really good broad framework for – like you use the simile of sports. There's something that it is to be a sport, and then there's practicing a sport. One, mm -hmm. pra you know, practicing one doesn't necessarily make you good at the other. Almost certainly practicing solely on one isn't going to necessarily expand your – ability to do the other. And I think that Sam's app was broad in a good introduction to what it even means to be mindful or at least more mindful than maybe you were or I was. Um, then there, there are these apps that try to get more specific, which I appreciate. So for instance, addiction, which we'll talk about. And they do this kind of sleazy, I think, sleight of hand where they say, talk all about mindfulness. And now they have this mindfulness meditation that just uses the word addiction in it. And then they say, yeah, right. and now, and now you know how to be more mindful and beat your addiction. And so right. it's, it's not actually applying in any strategic sort of a way, a kind of a practice that you could, that you could build upon to become more aware and that would help you in a practical sense in that domain. And so I'm, I guess Stemming from my last question about, you know, do you help people orient toward the kinds of practice that will help them in the practical things they want to do? You have, I think, plenty to say about 
addiction and how mindfulness interacts with just the phenomena of addiction. And I'm curious to hear how Bright Mind addresses that. Yeah, we definitely try to give very clear strategies whenever we address a topic like addiction. So to jump into some of those, micro hits, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. can be a life savior. Uh, it can be very transformative in the following ways. You notice you have a craving, uh, immediately do a micro hit, which can be, again, less than 10 minutes. You maybe think about this beforehand, okay, which technique kind of comes naturally to me, which technique in general helps me um, with cravings. And so then you just know to do that. And in my own experience, um, I've kind of, you know, definitely had nicotine cravings uh, over the past few years. And it's amazing how the craving arises and the only thing that will make me happy and the only thing that I really want to do is have a cigarette. But then I drop into a meditation technique and very quickly I, I open up to actually that is not what's going to make me happy. That's probably going to make me feel a little sick because <laughs> mm. nicotine mm. often does that. And I just clearly see that and it really helps the craving pass. And so micro hits, um, like uh, properly timed micro hits can be very helpful for people that are dealing with craving. And in order to expand on that a bit in terms of the mechanics of how that's working, I should mention the effect that mindfulness has on suffering. So in general, given a certain uncomfortable experience, So you may have tension in the body, negative self-talk in the mind. Given an uncomfortable experience, if you're mindful of that experience, the amount of suffering decreases. It's the same, even if the original experience doesn't change. It gets kind of trippy. You kind of have to experience this in order to understand it. But it's just, it's the same body sensation. It's the same craving, but the bother just isn't there anymore. And it it definitely relates to equanimity. Equanimity plays a really big role, which we talked about earlier in terms of that allowing a sense experience to come and go. Uh, If you really look under the hood of a human mind, a craving arises and we're subtly pushing and pulling on that experience. And that's what's creating the suffering. However, if we are able to greet that experience with equanimity, we allow it to arise fully. The suffering associated with it just is drastically reduced. It can even become pleasurable. It can even become kind of vibratory and flowy, which is a fascinating experience. I, I think probably the main mechanism that mindfulness can help in terms of behavior change and specifically cravings is that a craving arises You can do a micro hit right when that happens. You momentarily at least increase the amount of mindfulness which you're bringing to your experience, more specifically equanimity, more specifically an openness and an allowing of that craving to arise. It drastically reduces the suffering. And therefore, the craving just doesn't have the same pull on your behavior. It skews your behavior less. You can be more intentional with how you act. Um, And... 
one other thing that I, that I should mention up top is in terms of picking which meditation technique to do in order to deal with a craving, there's just two options really, or two important ways to think about that decision. You can either turn towards or turn away. What I mean by that is if you choose the turn toward option, which can be sometimes it's more challenging for people. Let's say you're experiencing tension in the body. If you were to focus on that, that would be a turn towards, an example of a turn towards strategy. However, if you were to focus on external sound, which a lot of people find very simple and grounding and has nothing to do with the craving, the experience of craving that they're having, that would be a turn away. And so most people, if you, if you are interested in exploring using meditation in order to deal with cravings in the moment, a really helpful framework is turn towards, turn away. One of them, just try both of them. And one of them will come naturally to you and you'll like that um, and, and go with that. Over time, months, maybe even years later, you can try to explore the other one if you want. But honestly, you don't necessarily, one's not better than the other. It's not like turning towards is better than turning away. They both work. So that's a really important frame and something to experiment with and see what you like. And there's a, there's a big difference in personalities. Some people really like on day one, they just can handle and find it most helpful to turn towards the craving and focus and clarify that experience. Whereas other people um, don't like that and they like focusing away from the craving. Importantly though, they're, they're al allowing the craving to come up in the background. And that's the equanimity piece again. So no matter what you greet the craving with equanimity. Um, and I guess one last thing I'll say is it may be kind of confusing for listeners to grok all the different ways you can focus. And that's kind of something that is best done experientially. And if you, if you, if you do a few meditations in bright mind, you'll get, you'll very quickly get a sense of all the different ways that you can focus and the kind of framework of turning towards turning away will make a bit more sense because you will have tried a bunch of those different options. So I, I just laid out a lot of, of pretty clear stat strategies, micro hits, turn towards, turn away. Um, yeah, I'll just kind of stop there. I don't know why you're going to have questions or suggestions. Sure. Well, let's just expand on it. You know, as, as far as is actually practical within you know, some sort of reasonable time. And I should back up and just offer what we use vaguely as a definition for addiction. And it's not that people can't come in with their own definition of what addiction is. If somebody wants help from us, whatever that help is that they can come in with their definitions. We, we only serve to try to help people articulate what it is that they need help with. But the definition we use is something like, you know, addiction is the relationship that people form with either an activity, an involvement, a drug, a person, and it's a relationship that, you know, there's behavior in which they continue to pursue this thing despite net negative consequences. So that gets into a few different things that people often ask. One is, what are the negative consequences of this action? What is it that brings about the negative consequences? I mean, let's say if people are worried about a drug addiction. Is it the drug itself that's leading to the negative consequences? Or is it the way in which the drug is being used that leads to negative consequences? And what are they? And then there's a perception about whether a consequence is negative or whether it's just something that's associated in a negative way. And then there's the question, all right, let's just assume negative means something substantial. 
you know, some people like to say that people tolerate the consequences because they don't have attractive alternatives to whatever that behavior is. And I think that's true to a degree. Mm-hmm. Another way of thinking about it, though, could be is that they're not aware of attractive alternatives or they haven't thought about what could be an attractive alternative. Um, I'm not sure exactly where I want to take this, but it could be that people have plenty of resources and skills and interests that they're just not thinking about because they're so narrowed in on what they must have. And maybe perhaps with the right kind of a practice, some of which you mentioned, the idea of I must have it might make no sense. And on the other hand, I do, I have worked people before who you mentioned smoking. So I'll, I'll take that one who have simply, you know, they do crave smoking. So they will go ahead and smoke and then they will have practiced smoking more mindfully and in going ahead and doing it and becoming aware of sensations that they're having uh, while smoking, they start to think about what is it that I enjoy about this and what is it that I, that I don't enjoy about it. So I guess I just laid out a bunch of different pieces and scattered ways for you there. But if there's anything that you think is interesting about any of that uh, parsing of definitions, I'm interested to get your take. Yeah, a bunch of really interesting threads there. One is, do you know Judd Brewer? Are you familiar with his research? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So yeah, for those who don't know, he's done some really interesting research around teaching smokers to be mindful as they're smoking. Like he gets them all together in a group and like leads them in awareness exercises and like has them pay attention to how the cigarette tastes. And long story short, he's gotten even better results with like less recidivism than um, the gold standard of addiction, which I think, I don't know what it is for cigarettes. Do you know off the top of your head? In, in terms anyway, of therapy, it's just basic cognitive behavioral therapies or help people quit addictions. Yeah. In terms of replacements, which is probably not what you're talking about. It, interestingly, vaping has been the best smoking cessation, better than patches or hmm. lozenges or things like that. So that's a, Does that count, that's, that's probably that count. Uh, Well, so Are you I'm, still getting the nicotine if you're vaping? Uh, yeah, well, you're still getting the nicotine if you wear a patch too. But people, oh, right. the, the idea being, the, the reason I thought it would be interesting to bring up is that a lot of times people will switch to vaping and not necessarily because they want to quit, mm-hmm. but they'll, they'll wind up vaping less and less too because it's something right. that they can do with less dissonance. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, okay, so to jump into the two other threads that you mentioned, I did mention craving. Um, but to in the in the um, spirit of broadening our discussion, I'll, I'll broaden in kind of two steps. Awesome. The first step is beyond thinking about addiction, you can talk about behavior change. So that starts to include, well, maybe I'm having trouble writing my book. And so there's it's not that you're craving something, it's that you're avoiding something. And so micro hits and turn towards turn away what I just talked about absolutely can be applied to both craving and aversion. So if you're experiencing craving of wanting to do something, or if you're experiencing a hesitation and you don't want to do something, you can apply mindfulness, a technique, either turn towards or turn away, and that reduces the tug that your experience has on on how you end up acting. So that's kind of the first step of broadening is you you can use it very broadly in terms of literally any behavior change. And the second thing which you definitely are pointing to, which is 
Uh, I've been talking about how the mindfulness attention skills can be used to help with behavior change. Um, you know, I've been talking about how equanimity is an openness. And if you can achieve that, then the experience doesn't have as much of a pull on your, on your eventual behavior. That's all well and good. And to be clear, that is the realm, that's the scale, that's the kind of thing that mindfulness is really helpful for. Mm. However, mature mindfulness teachers will say that it's not the only intervention on the table. Mindfulness is not the only intervention on the table. And using your attention skills is really great and can be amazingly impactful and very helpful and certainly should probably be a tool in your toolkit. But there's a lot else out there that supports you can create that supports a mindfulness practice. And like, just the obvious example is like, creative thinking or rational thinking, which is kind of I think what you're getting to, which is like, well, wait a second, do I have something better to do? Like, maybe that would be helpful. Right, <laughs> like, does that right. something better to do other than this thing that isn't really helpful for me? So like, absolutely, you're encouraged to utilize a wide variety of resources and the attentional skills, the working of the mind is really only, uh, it, sh it should always be couched in that larger context of you should have friends, you should have um, support, you should have like a council of support is kind of a term I often use in terms of a council of people that are bringing different things, different perspectives, different tools to your tool belt. They're going to help you in different ways. Yeah. And there is some, the, I think the last thing I'll say is there is some relationship between developing mindfulness and being more clear thinking, more rational, more creative, maybe in terms of coming up with alternative things that don't even really have to do with the craving or aversion. There is some relationship there, but it's pretty, it's pretty gray. I certainly can't talk about that clearly, but I guess what I would say is, is something really broad, which is that if you talk to veteran meditators, in general, most people will say stuff like, as I became more mindful, that freed up energy for me to be more creative and rational. And so it's not like they're completely separate worlds. I think simply working with your mind can actually enable better decision-making and better problem-solving kind of in the objective world. But it's hard for people to kind of describe and talk about clearly, but it just kind of, if you just talk to veteran meditators, they say, oh yeah, no, it happens. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll leave it there. This brings up two examples that I want to run by you. Okay, so you just said a lot of veteran meditators will say, you know, that freed up this sort of cognitive load that you might have otherwise. And I remember working with, I should be careful, but I remember working with a person who, this person had, had every excuse to be nihilistic. If there is any good excuse, you know, that poverty on the streets wasn't completely clear when the next meal would be trying to make a living. And this is a high school person because there's no one to look up to in the picture would really wanted some agency away from like social workers and stuff kept trying and failing at like getting jobs, housing, paying bills, you know, all while trying to do the high school thing. And I remember this person getting into a deep mindfulness and meditation routine. Hmm. And this person explaining to me that they actually did 
it freed up just enough space in that cognitive load that a lot of us probably can't imagine having, you know, to the extent that this person did. And uh, that actually being the turning point, like it didn't make things necessarily better. didn't necessarily make things worse. It just freed up a little bit of space for things to happen. And I wonder if that has something yeah. to do with what you were explaining. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the word space is some, is a word that a lot of meditators use. And um, yeah, there's a lot there. One thing that meditation can do is just, it's yeah, it's really hard to exchange, explain, but the experience is before you were kind of all there was, was thoughts and feelings. And then with practice, your awareness kind of expands and there's a container and you have a greater spatial experience of self and stress might arise within that, but there's more space for it to arise and there's more space for it to kind of bounce around. And it's therefore more manageable rather than being kind of all consuming. Yeah. That's a, that's a very common report. It just uh, to put one touch on this, I remember also this person, that if it weren't that it could be a potential violation of talking about a student, I would, I would love to use this person as a case study, but um, they kind of were veering toward like nihilistic fuck the world kind of attitude. And I, I truly do remember about a year into practicing mindfulness at a location here in Burlington, actually this person, things like they don't usually drink soda so if the person got a soda by chance, like a deep noticing of the fact that something novel happened that they associated with enjoyment. And that's the thing that occupied their frame way more than like, they're just the gratitude for something interesting like that happening rather than the, you know, negative cycle of thinking about all of the things that were going to make them plummet to unhappiness. I don't know that I've ever been able to truly get there, but I know that that something like that is something to shoot for. And I wonder if you've seen that kind of a transformation of people before, or if you've had that before where you can all all of a sudden, I guess perhaps it sort of comes from that freeing up of space. Now you can be not only less unhappy or or, or like less bogged down by feelings of negativity or like an assignment of negativity on things, but also more enjoying of things that produce elation. Absolutely. So I, I've talked a lot about how mindfulness reduces the suffering associated with an unpleasant experience. It does the opposite for pleasurable experiences. So what that means is that given a pleasurable experience, like drinking a sweet drink, if you're mindful of that, if you're concentrated, clear, and equanimous with that experience, it actually elevates your fulfillment. It elevates the amount of fulfillment that you get out of it. And so, as you say, simple experiences such as drinking a soda or sipping hot tea in the morning, or, I mean, I've done some training at a monastery and sometimes the meditation hall is really cold. (laughs) Mm. And some of the most fulfilling, amazingly awesome experiences I've had are like after a lot of meditation in a cold ass meditation hall, just sitting in front of a heater and like mindfully sipping hot water. It's like incredible. It almost like blows my circuits, Mm. how pleasurable and fulfilling that is. And like, 
it's a very, I'm just experiencing like heat and hot water. Like if the hot water isn't even flavored or sweetened or anything, but it's like, whoa. And where I'm getting with that is this elevation of fulfillment, which also happens with mindfulness. And I think, yeah, I think that can actually kind of play into that, uh, the other thread that we've been talking about in terms of it's not all about just like getting rid of the negative. There's also a role that emphasizing the positive and the pleasurable and the things that you do have kind of a natural affiliation for, like there's a really important role for that in addiction and behavior change and really in any mindfulness practice, it's really important for the student to not only learn how to reduce suffering associated with negative experiences, but also experience fulfillment and rapture for even simpler things. And it usually starts to happen naturally, but uh, yeah, that's a whole other piece and how it plays in. Well, okay. So now I really would love to tie these concepts together. Let's say we were talking about smoking before, and then we're mm-hmm. talking about, I was just mentioning like soda and that being enjoyable. Let's just say that, let's just say, let's just bring those things together. Let's just call it soda. There could easily be someone who's craving soda, addicted to soda, and they're mm-hmm. focusing on how to manage the tide of cravings for soda. But I, I suppose it's not necessarily that Coca-Cola is doing something bad in and of itself. It's the way that that thing becomes absorbed and, and uh, thought about in the context of mm-hmm. a person's life that is, is either making it the perception of good or bad. So it's funny that, not that this person had an addiction to soda, but if you believe a standard story about addiction being a brain disease, as we often are told, which inherently means to some people that drugs have some ineluctable draw to them. So once you do them, you can never become unaddicted. Then you would think that this enjoyment and gratitude and elation that a person felt when she was able to do something as novel as drink a soda, well, that should then, by definition, lead to an addiction. But what I was seeing was actually mm. the opposite. Someone who's enjoying something that you might call addictive in another circumstance, but has a relationship with it in a completely non-addictive way. And I wonder if that's a phenomenon that you've explored much. Yeah, that's, that's a really awesome point. Which brings us back to the definition of equanimity. The definition of equanimity is your ability to allow sense experience to come and go without push or pull. A lot of our discussion has focused on allowing negative experiences to arise, allowing cravings to come. And like, if you can really allow that, then it doesn't have as much of a pull. But what we're talking about more and what you're, you're pointing to is when we have positive experiences, when we have pleasurable experiences, the skill of equanimity, it's very important to allow those, those pleasurable experiences to go and to leave your awareness and not come back. Mm. And to the extent that you can allow the taste of a sweet drink to go, that's equanimity. By the way, that, that directly relates to how fulfilled you are. So um, if you are experiencing soda with equanimity, that means that you allow the pleasure to arise and then you also let it go. And to the extent that you let it go, you let it leave your awareness, you let the taste end, you're actually going to get more fulfillment out of it. And you can see how that then doesn't create the addictive tendency 
that otherwise might manifest because you're really letting the pleasurable experience go and you're not pulling it towards you again. Because if you were kind of pulling that experience towards you, then the only way to resolve that is to behaviorally take another sip or get another soda the next day. And so that can create a more addictive behavior, more addictive mindset around the substance, more addictive relationship to uh, the behavior. So I think, I guess what I'm doing here is just adding a little piece of like mechanics of how mindfulness allows an increase in fulfillment, but that it doesn't necessarily translate into the more repetitive behaviors that can otherwise happen if something is pleasurable. And specifically the mechanic is part of the skill that you're learning is allowing stuff to leave your awareness. Right. The experience of something coming and going itself is the the thing that's interesting. Yes, exactly. After it's gone, you're really okay with that. And you're not reaching back into time to try to pull it towards you. You're just content and okay. That's not a place from which one kind of develops an addictive behavior. It's just, well, what's the next thing? Right. You could easily imagine somebody less mindful saying, for the love of God, this is the one silver lining of my day. I need the yeah. silver lining all the time. Yeah. But th- th- it was more, it was more, uh, that's cool that things like this can happen during my day. I wonder if this yeah. is something like this. And not even like, I wonder if something like this will happen again. Just, you know, enjoying the experience, which is still, to be completely honest, Toby, it's, I, it's not something that I, that I manage to, um, satisfy all the time I, I like i think this 17 year old kid mm-hmm. is was more mindful then than i've ever been in my whole life not that i don't mm-hmm. understand the concept <laughs> that's great good for him i'd like to talk about before we go anxiety mm-hmm. too and we could be yeah. brief if you'd like and here's a way that i think about handling anxiety and i you could probably chalk this up to something like mindfulness but i would i'll bet that you have some way that's interesting to expand on it to me when you're anxious, you think that something's going to happen and when it happens, it's going to be bad. So the way I attack that is through both of those things. Well, I start first, I think, I wonder what some reasons are that this thing won't happen. That's sort of like, I try to open myself up to the extent possible to be reasonable and rational about this. Then I also think, okay, well, if it does happen, what are some interesting things that might result from it happening. So, you know, whether it's like worried about a conversation with a boss or or something like that, uh, rather than letting myself spin my wheels about, I might get fired. I do this sort of, I don't know when I started doing it and I didn't exactly strategize about doing it, but I would imagine that this is something like mindfulness. I, I always go through this thought process of, well, there are tons of reasons why this thing I'm worried about isn't going to happen. And also, there's some reasons why if it does happen, maybe I couldn't, shouldn't be worried about it. And then also, even if this does happen, let me think even further into the future about what advantages it might bring. I'm interested to get your, your take on what that whole phenomenon is and, and why it seems to have given me benefit. Yeah, really great direction. I think first and foremost, most of what you're describing in your experience more relates to this theme that we've been talking about where mindfulness is, at least in the way that I'm defining it, is 
ways of shifting one's attention, kind of raw sensory input and how that's perceived. And it's related to, but not the same as, or it's, it's kind of unclear how it's related to the perspectives, the very skillful and good and wholesome and rational and clear perspectives that you're bringing up, which are more psychological. It's more, if this thing happens, is it really going to be bad? Is it even going to happen? If it does happen, maybe there'll be good things. I think that um, that's all good. And I think that there is a relationship between becoming more mindful and being able to take on those perspectives and actually appreciate them. But I, it is a little bit, it's just a little gray and it's hard for me to talk about uh, in terms of how that actually happens. Again, if you talk to most veteran meditators, they'll say like, yeah, I am able to take on those types of perspectives. But I do think that other modalities, other things that you can do may be actually like better at getting to where you're at. Like yeah. I think writing a to or writing a pro and cons list down um, might be an actually even more effective way to get to some of the perspectives that you're getting at than doing a meditation mm. and, or talking to a friend that you trust or talking to a psychologist. I mean, this is in my experience, this is a lot of what psychologists or at least good psychologists are good at, which is, you know, fielding a problem and, and offering an alternative perspective. Um, that has been my experience working with psychologists. And so I, I think that actually some other interventions, some other modalities <clears throat> can be even more helpful than meditation in terms of getting to those, those perspectives where you're at. Let, but, let, may, I ask, yeah. may I ask this a little, slightly sure. different way? I, I think you're right. Um, this is not what I asked before. So it's not, I guess I shouldn't say a slightly different way. It's kind of a different question. I think that there's something happening to me that I'm, maybe not totally aware of and could be more aware of when I transfer my energy or transfer my experience from being worried about something that hasn't even happened yet. And whatever that feeling is, I'm saying, this is a negative feeling and who knows how long it's going to last. And then getting into the state where I'm, I feel okay. Like I've, I've talked this thing through, I've expanded my horizon a little bit. I think that probably physically and and maybe otherwise, there's something interesting that's happened that because I'm using a different means to that same end, I'm not thinking about it or I'm not noticing or feeling. And I wonder if you have guesses about what that that kind of equilibrium that I that I feel might be and how you would put it into terms of mindfulness. So are you saying that you have an anxiety, you adopt one of these more skillful perspectives, for example even if it does happen, maybe it's not that bad. And then after that, you arrive at a more, a calmer equilibrium. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just thinking, I probably haven't really thought very much about, like there are probably things like, I'm probably breathing slower. I'm probably noticing a sensation as something different than I, than I thought about it before. Like the, like that, like the idea that kind of excitement and anxiety are, very similar, if not exactly the same yeah. physical feeling, you know, that kind of a thing. And I'm, yeah. I'm just, as I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm thinking it through it. So sorry that you have to be on the end of that, but I'm, no. I'm just, I'm just sure. realizing that there are probably experiences that are happening that would be interesting to be aware of. And that's what I'm asking is um, how someone like you might be thinking about um, your sensations as, as 
something like that's happening. Yeah. So I do think I will, I think I want to hit on how mindfulness can be used to deal with anxiety. Um, because I think that some of that is happening in your experience. And I think that that's what you're kind of pointing to and you're asking me to flesh out and I definitely will flesh that out. Um, but before saying that, I think I would just double click on, I think what you're describing is as simple as objectively, there's a problem. You adopt a more skillful perspective and you're therefore relaxed because you just figured something out. And it's like, it's actually no attentional, um, you know, samurai, <laughs> anything. It's just like you figure <laughs> something out and you therefore feel relaxed. And it's, and it's a, a very, just the way that our nervous system works is if there's confusion, that can create tension in the body and the mind. And if that confusion is resolved via actual thinking, then that straight up changes our physiology. You know, stress hormones relax, our body feels more open and relaxed, our mind feels calmer. And you're doing that because you're actually figuring something out and thinking clearly. I think that that's mostly what's going on in terms of at least what you're describing. That's why you feel like there's an equilibrium mm. is because you've had smart thoughts and you've actually resolved an actual problem that existed in the world and you've come up with a real solution or at least a new way of looking at it that it's just like you deserve to feel relaxed now and you don't, you're not even doing any like um, gymnastics to you. You're just thinking more correctly. So I think that that is a lot of what, goes on but in terms of mindfulness and how mindfulness relates to these kinds of situations uh again you have in in the experience of anxiety you have an unpleasant experience and as we've been talking about to the extent that you're mindful of that experience the associated suffering gets reduced this can happen at the same time as you're also, you know, thinking critically and problem solving and experimenting with taking on different perspectives. And it's really, it's best if you do this at the same time. Um, uh, because if you're, you know, an experience of worry and anxiety arises, you're a bit more flustered, a bit more uh, on edge. And if you can bring mindfulness to that, it takes the edge off, takes the bother off. You can a, li a little bit more calmly kind of do the work that, that you're also doing in terms of actually figuring out a better way to look at the situation. And, and that can resolve, result in a better, better, better outcome, a better process of thinking critically and thinking intelligently. And it's also possible, this is, this is hard mode though, Hard mode is an experience of worry and anxiety arises. And you just greet it with mindfulness. And without taking on other perspectives about how what you're worried about may not be that bad, but just with your raw attention 
you dissolve that unpleasant experience. But really what happens is you open up to it and you clarify it so much that it, it just arises and then it, it usually goes away. There's this pattern that happens in meditation where if you fully open to especially stuff like worry and anxiety, it just eats itself and it just mm. ends on its own. And you end up in that equilibrium that you're talking about, but you've done so purely with the strength of your mind and not via thinking about the situation. Now, I have to say that it's not like you should just do that all the time. And in fact, a lot of meditators, there's a really serious problem with meditators that just do that because they've learned how to do that. They just do that. And they therefore end up screwing up their lives. Actually, they end up, um, it's called, um, quote unquote, spiritual bypassing is what this is called. Mm -hmm. And so uh, something, a problem arises in your life and you, you use your mind, you use spirituality in, in, in order to bypass it and you're fine. You get back to that equilibrium. And so you're happy, but there is definitely times in your life where like you need to be just taking on more skillful perspectives and like taking action in your life. And especially, uh, and so it can over time, especially have negative consequences. So it's not to say, I'm not saying that the, the hundred percent mind route towards the equilibrium is better. Uh, what I'm saying is it's very important to experience that. It's very important to develop the ability. When it's the right time and place, you got to try this. You got to try just greeting the worry and anxiety. You just, you just dissolve it with clarity mm -hmm. of attention. It's very important to experience that. And then you have now two tools in your tool belt going forward. You have the tool of thinking and perspective taking, and you can use that now. Um, but you also have this other tool of just raw mind power and you can now start using them together, which really is, that's really, I think kind of what we're going towards is, is being able to use them in concert and have them support each other. But prior to this type of experience, you really, you don't know, you're unaware of how much your attention is actually playing into the suffering that you're experiencing. And yes, you can resolve it by thinking. And yes, you can resolve it by considering it and journaling and doing pro and con lists. Yes, you can resolve it that way. But it is really, it kind of puts things in perspective to at least experience this other way of getting back to equilibrium. Not to say that it's the be all end all. But then you kind of, you're just more elastic and more capable of a human going forward. You got somehow to exactly the point I was trying to, to get us to. So that was really well said. Great. Um, I'm thinking about, I have heard some people talk about, you know, when they're truly mindful for some period of time and their practice is uh, extending, they've noticed that things that make them angry, say, they really, that anger actually can't last more than I don't know a few seconds if they're really just being completely mindful about what it is that they're feeling and experiencing which is so interesting for me that's like frustration and anger about trivial bullshit is such like something that I that I, it's like a lifelong journey for me but um it sort of speaks to 
you're reinforcing that by what you're saying to some extent yeah getting through being frustrated about something when once you reflect on it okay the frustration probably wasn't warranted certainly has some element of critical thinking involved you know the solution to that is probably going to involve some critical thinking but also if you're really if you're really utilizing the full gestalt there you you want to be able to notice what it is that you're feeling and experiencing um, and thinking in the moment also and when people do that and have paired those two things i've definitely heard more than one person say that they went from being angry all the time at weird stuff um, and, you know, having this anger last all day, like it puts a bad taste in their mouth and they're thinking about it when they go to bed at night, something that happened in the morning or days ago to mm-hmm. now they're thinking, it's so funny that I used to be that way because now when something makes me angry, it just, that feeling dissipates in like 10 to 20 seconds. And it's almost like I can't feel angry for longer than that. Yeah. And there's some really interesting neuroscience research that supports these, um, these reports. Uh, specifically, I participated in a study at Harvard, uh, the researchers, David Vago, Dave Vago. And one thing that he saw, and some other researchers have found this too, is if you put meditators in an fMRI machine, which is basically, um, it watches what's going on in the brain mm-hmm. um, over time, and you can see changes in the brain over time, given a negative stimulus, like pain or fear, the limbic system gets activated and you see that light up on the, on the fMRI data. And for meditators and specifically the longer you've meditated, the more you see this, uh, which is interesting. So there's a linear relationship. Uh, The longer you've meditated, the quicker you see the limbic system calm back down after the negative stimulus. And so there's very clear um, neuroscientific data that supports getting back to equilibrium more quickly. That's very interesting. Right? So you have that negative experience and you, you, you have, because you're opening to it, you then, yeah, in terms of the actual brain activity, you're returning to baseline brain activity more quickly. So we've gone through a range of different ways of thinking about what mindfulness means and, and then also what it means in the context of just overall life experience. We touched on addiction briefly, which is interesting because, you know, addiction is sort of what this is supposed to be centered around, but I don't think we could have possibly done that without opening up to the broader conversation. So I'm I'm glad about that. And I'm wondering if you have, you know, do you have a cherry on top that you'd like to, that you'd like to put on this conversation or any other observations about where you could see my mind is trending um, or or anything that you'd like to say about bright mind or or things you think might be valuable for people listening? Yeah. um, It's been a really enjoyable conversation and thank you for having me on it's been yeah it's been great yeah thank you uh, too it's been i great. think that yeah yeah um i think i do have a cherry and what that is is we've been we've been broadening our definition of addiction throughout this conversation and really interestingly uh in the world of meditation and mindfulness the word addiction is used even more broadly to refer to, at at least in some contexts, within some conversations, the word addiction is used to refer to the relationship that pretty much everyone has with thinking and with 
thinking patterns, really patterns within the self system. I mean, that's pretty broad. It's like you wake up in the morning and the patterns start up. And we all experience this. We all have patterns of thinking and feeling our internal world. Um, we have stimulus that creates certain patterns, um, you know, relationships that create certain patterns, certainly patterns with substances and food, but also just um, even like worldview patterns of, for example, to just take one kind of worldview, the, you know, the neoliberal worldview of like voting and how each person should have a say in the government. And like that is democracy. And like that type of the way of thinking about the world is actually a pattern that's just being repeated within um, our own self system. And so one way that meditators you know, one, 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 some, some areas that they end up exploring is using meditation in order to break their addiction to stuff, to, to just even any and all patterns and thoughts that arise within their self system. And it's not to end them. It's just to change your relationship to them. And this has to do with that space metaphor that we've been talking about, or that we, we talked about. And you could imagine that the kind of patterns of self prior to meditation exists in yet and in, in a smaller space. And if you broaden that space, you broaden the awareness with which the thinking kind of arises, then you are, you're not the same thing as the thoughts. You're not the same thing as the feelings. You're, you're kind of a bigger space where the think where the thinking and feelings are happening. And so therefore you're a little less, um, controlled by them, a little less addicted to them. And the reason to do this, the reason that this is a good idea, is that to the extension that um, you can break your addiction to thinking, the wisdom of your thoughts increases. And so it's one thing to use meditation in order to um, kind of break down and break the addiction to a certain behavior, there's this whole other world and a whole super broad world where you really address your addiction to your sense of self and your addiction to your sense of thinking. And as you're able to do that, the thoughts that end up arising are more wise and, and more connected to you and your life and the people around you. Um, so I guess I'll, that's kind of a, uh, I do have something I want to say about bright mind. But before I say that, do you have any reflections on that? I, I remember, I think you and I talked about that in a, in a previous conversation and that I wanted to bring it in because I think your listeners would find it interesting. I just want to say that, that what you just said about broadening the concept of addiction to meaning something that is universal about being mm -hmm. human, being alive, is it resonates with me so deeply. And there's, to the extent that you're, you're speaking with wisdom about it, which you are, there's no broadening of the concept that, that isn't going to resonate for a program like ours, because what we're trying to push back on with our program, uh, softly as it may be, is the idea that, you know, people have made a niche out of treating addiction. It's one of the reasons why it's been difficult for us to get like Google analytics, because every, anything you say that, that sounds like it's going against the grain uh, it, it, it seems like you're like a snake oil salesman doing addiction stuff, but it's actually the, the other way around. People are trying to say that 
um, addiction is something unique to drugs or it's like a unique experience that it takes a very special kind of help or some Mm -hmm. uh, like magic to solve because it's a magical experience, but it's not, it's a very broad and universal experience. And I appreciate that perspective. And I just thank you for, for all that you said there. And you probably said it better than I have previously. And certainly you've said it better than I could have with respect to mindfulness. So just want to say thanks again, but uh, I'll leave it back to you for to, to say whatever you want about bright mind. Great. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's a really empowering, it can be a really empowering experience to notice that everyone deals with an addiction to their mind. And, um, and there, therefore it's just like, the, I don't know, I guess the skills maybe that you learn dealing with substance abuse or something can actually also be applied to the mind and, and just make you happier. Um, so to, to talk about Bright Mind for a bit, um, just so everyone knows, I encourage you to, to check out Bright Mind. It's, uh, as we've been talking about meditation kind of in the abstract throughout this conversation. And it's really, really important to actually experience it. Uh, it's a lot more interesting and fun and helpful if you experience concentration, equanimity, and clarity. That's where the, that's where the, the juice is at. And I'm offering uh, 50% off our annual subscription to all listeners. And you can redeem that at brightmind.com slash LPP for life Ooh. process program. So that's brightmind.com slash LPP. Brightmind is B-R-I-G-H-T-M-I-N-D. No S. Yeah, don't, um, don't listen to anything I've written before. Only, <laughs> only look at what's in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it comes out to like 50 bucks. And um, you'll get a year of access to this curriculum that we've been working on for years and uh, really takes it from square one and builds the learning up slowly. You'll learn all the different techniques, all the different practices, all the different concepts that we've been talking about. Um, you'll get to see that in your own experience. And um, so, yeah, I really hope that it can be a, a helpful resource for you. Well, thank you so much. I, we can count on the fact that people are going to go and, and join. And I, I just really hope the people listening who do make it over there see the benefit. And, you know, I know Christian very well. So uh, hearing him talk about it, I understand at least partially what kind of work goes into making the entire thing accessible for everybody with all different mm -hmm. kinds of preferences. So first, thank you so much for taking a lot of your time to talk to me and to all of us about mindfulness and how it relates to addiction. And thank you also for just giving us the privilege of being able to experience the hard work that you've done at a reduced cost. I can't thank you enough for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Zach. It's been really fun. I always love the opportunity to, you know, sit down and have a, a long form conversation. So um, thanks for asking amazing questions. I feel like we covered a lot of really interesting ground. I, I always learn you know, when I have these types of conversations too. So um, it's been really fun and yeah, keep up the good work.